Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trial Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I'm fantastic. More than anything, I love when we have big guests, and if uh, if we don't call this person a big guest, we would be lying. Uh, we welcome to the show today Robert Sumwalt, the most recent chairman of the NTSB. Welcome to the show, Robert. I mean, thanks, Wally. Thank you all for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, I just want to tell everybody a little bit about how we had this chance meeting. I happen to be flying a flight from Houston to Washington uh, many, many years ago. And um, I was uh, the airplane had not arrived at the gate yet, and I was standing by the window waiting for the airplane uh, to get there. And a gentleman came up and uh, struck up a conversation with me. Uh, he introduced himself, and as uh, as as yourself, I mean, we are talking about you. Uh, he said, "Hi, I'm Robert Sumwalt." He, he said, "I'm I'm with the NTSB." And we started talking airplanes. We started talking seven thirty sevens and and systems and it it became a very apparent uh really quick that the the gentleman i was talking to really knew his stuff because he he was asking me some questions that were deep deep down in the weeds on the the intricacies of a 737 and um as the airplane got there and i needed to go to work and actually get on the airplane and start pre-flighting i i asked I asked Robert, I said, well, what do you do with the NTSB? And I, I expected him to say, I'm uh, an accident investigator. That's kind of what I, I sensed. And he said, I'm a, I'm a board member. And, and I, I went, wow, okay. And, and I went and got on the airplane, and I was telling my first officer, I said, um, we've got a, a NTSB board member that, that's about to be on our flight. I just talked to the guy for 15 minutes, and um I says, you know, the, the NTSB is, uh, it's not like there's 500 board members. I mean, this is, uh, NTSB board members is a, is a big deal. Um, and so we, we had some communications back and forth. And then um, a few years later, um, I happened to be reading the news and I read where uh, President Trump had appointed Robert as chairman of the NTSB. So I, I, I sent him an email and congratulated him. And I believe the email that I sent to him was on a Friday night. And within about 20 minutes, I had a response back from him, um, you know, thanking me for my congratulatory email. And um, so I've followed your career. I've, uh, um, uh, you know, watched you on a lot of videos and, and read a lot of a lot of uh literature about your career and um so then when we started the podcast i you know bobby and i were talking about guests and i said well i said here's a stretch but i i'll reach out to uh, uh robert sumwalt and uh then i saw your retirement and um so here we are so robert why don't you just give us a little brief uh i don't know three five minute uh synopsis of your career how do how do you go from from being a, a high school kid to becoming chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board? Well, that's a great question. I've been wondering the same thing for a number of years. So uh, uh, it, uh, it, I've, I've been extremely fortunate. Uh, I, you're right. I did start flying in high school. Um, by the time I 
had graduated from high school, I, uh, I, I had my private and then, uh, of course, went to college a few months later. And uh, I marched into the dean of students office um, after I'd been at the university for just uh, about three weeks and explained to him why we needed a, a flying club. And then he sat down and proceeded to tell me all the reasons why that was not going to happen. Uh, and on the way out, and by the way, this was the University of South Carolina. And on the way out, uh, I said, gosh, I just thought since Clemson had a flying club since 1928, I thought South Carolina needed one. And uh, he said, uh, sit back down, young man. And within about five months, we had our first airplane. Uh, for those who are not uh, that aware, uh, as you can imagine, having two state-supported schools in a tiny state, there's quite a rivalry between those two, uh, between those colleges. Unfortunately, Clemson is the one with the uh, with the football team. Uh, the question is, did Clemson really have a flying club? Well, you know, as a 17-year-old, I was probably known to exaggerate things a little bit, but uh, <laughs> but to the best of my knowledge, uh, I think they uh, they did. So, high school, what what what's next? I mean, what were you? You became a pilot, of course. What, what's next in the career that led you to the NTSB? Yeah, I did, uh, of course, fly all through college. And um, I was hired by the university um, to be their pilot when they bought a brand new Piper Navajo Chieftain in 1979. I had not finished school yet, but I was doing school and flying full time for the university. I flew there for two years. And then in February of 81, got hired by Piedmont Airlines, which, of course, got bought by by U.S. Air, U.S. Airways, and then uh, and then that's where I ended my career in 2004. Uh, ran a little Fortune 500 flight department here in uh, South Carolina, and then uh, in in 06, President uh, President George W. Bush, another uh, great Texan name, Texas name there, um, uh, appointed me to be a board member and vice chairman of the NTSB. I was there for 15 years, appointed by President Bush, uh, reappointed by President Obama reappointed by President Trump, and then named as the chairman of the agency. So um, I've really, really had a, a blessed career. That's not, that's awesome. I think we all think of the NTSB as this organization that touches aviation, but one we really don't want to ever talk to or ever be a part of a conversation with. Um, what, what do you think pilots should be thinking about the NTSB or how we interact with the NTSB? That, that we don't think about or don't know about, like what, what, what should we think of the organization? You're right, Bobby. Um, part of the story is that, that when I was in college, I did not really like studying calculus. So I would go to the government documents library and read NTSB accident reports. Uh, I was also, I was always interested in the NTSB. Um, and so, uh, but you're right. I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what the board's role is. And, uh, you know, the, the NTSB is, is, a, is an accident investigation agency. They do not, they're not a regulatory agency. Of course, that's what the FAA does. And, um, but really that's what the board does or the agency does is that they investigate transportation accidents, all modes of transportation. They determine probable cause and then issue safety recommendations. Uh, the whole idea behind the NTSB is really uh, to improve safety. They don't have a, a hammer. They're not out to slam pilots or they can't suspend pilot certificates. The FAA can, but our role, and I say our, I've got to get my tense right. Of course, I'm no longer part of it, but it's after 15 years of NTSB um, 
employment. I still call it uh, we and our and things like that. So forgive me for getting those pronouns wrong. Uh, but really, uh, it's a great little agency, 400 employees, five board members appointed by, by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful agency and a great group of uh, federal employees who love what they do. We talked a little bit about, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about Sully and the, the role of that, uh, the role that might have been portrayed between the NTSB and the, the pilots and that they were out to get them and maybe didn't see eye to eye with some other organizations. Good movie, but it was a movie. You were part of that uh, experience in real time. Tell us a little bit about your in, uh, interactions with the, the whole court hearing and everything that went on with that, that accident. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've known Sully uh, for, gosh, since around 1991. Uh, we both flew for the same airline and uh, and uh, have known him for a very long time. So when I learned that he was the pilot of, of that airplane, U.S. Air Cactus 1549, um, it didn't surprise me that it was done well. I learned, uh, you know, his name that night. But, um, yeah, the movie was a, was a good movie. Um, parts of it were extremely accurate. I understand that, uh, that the production company bought, actually bought two old seven or uh, Airbus A320s, bought them out of the desert and actually wanted to submerge them into a lake or something to, to, uh, increase the realism instead of just doing it by computer animation or something. But when it did come to the part about how the NTSB uh, handled things, that was that was not true at all. Uh, we never interrogated uh, Sully. Uh, I did chair the public hearing, the investigative hearing. I chaired it, so I know how it went. Uh, it's on YouTube. People can can search it on YouTube and see the one hour that he was actually on the stand, and it was fairly benign. In fact, I praised uh, Sully for his professionalism. And um, uh, yeah, they acted like we took him back behind the, uh, behind the shed there and, and, and whipped him with, uh, with rubber hoses. Um, of course, the part about the simulations being conducted in France and being t- uh, telemetered um, or broadcast live into the hearing room, that was not true. Uh, there had been tests in Toulouse. Uh, where uh, our investigators did go there and and run simulations, but you know that and and I'm not even sure that Sully was the one that suggested why don't you add another thirty seconds for the uh, for the uh, surprise factor. But um, at the end, uh, I think the NTSB did a very good job with the investigation. I think we got it right, and uh, the main objective is to is again to learn from it so that uh, these things won't happen again. That was going to be my follow-up question was, did he really suggest that, or was that something that was omitted? But I do think uh, as a patron of the movie, that was a very, the way they portrayed that was a very interesting part of the movie where it almost seemed to clear his name when he had that idea. But um, gosh, hopefully I'm never in an incident of any sort, but I do think that it would take me a few minutes to get my bearings and, uh, figure out what's going on for sure. Absolutely. And, um, and by the way, just personally, um, I'll say, and even the, the investigative staff and the board members really feel like Captain Sullenberger and First Officer Stiles 
did an, an excellent job under extraordinary circumstances. And uh, so we don't want to take anything away from, from what they did. Uh, they did a wonderful job, as did the flight attendants, and being able to help get all of those uh, occupants off the airplane safely. Yeah, amazing story. It's probably unlikely that that, that could happen and not more people get hurt or, or perish in something like that. So obviously win-win for everybody seems like for sure. And I'm sure on the news, when you were the chairman, you saw something like that. You might have seen it in real time before you actually got the call to come investigate it as part of the NTSB. Um, we just recently had Tammy Jo Schultz on the show and she was involved in one of those big incidents. And that probably was heard about in real time, even before she's on the ground what I guess what's in your mind as the chairman when you're, you're seeing something like that in real time? I, I guess it's work mode. It's it's go time for sure. It certainly is. Um, I was in, in the office for uh, on the day that the Southwest Airlines um, had their unfortunate event landing in, and landed at, at Philadelphia. Um, and yes, we were able to turn on the TV and see the airplane sitting on the tarmac and, uh, and knowing that I was on call and knowing that we were going to be headed to Philadelphia shortly. So um, that was always a, an adrenaline rush when, you, when you're watching something on TV and you're scrambling to, uh, to be able to, uh, to get to the airport uh, so you can go and be where, where the action is. And there's probably more we don't see on TV like that, that your, your, your teams in the past worked on and worked for. What, I guess, do you have some statistics you can share from a GA perspective or any kind of insights that would make the aviators listening to this podcast more safe or better pilots? I'm sure you have tons of things, but I guess in my mind I'm thinking statistics. Where's the, the point of uh, most common cause of accident or where people get hurt that you might be able to share with us, Robert? Yes. Um, loss of control uh, in general aviation, loss of control in flight is the the most frequently cited uh, factor in a fatal general aviation accident. I think about 48% of the fatalities in general aviation are, uh, in, uh, are a result of loss of control accidents. So, you know, that's an area there where we can really, if you look at the big bar charts, that's the biggest bar chart in terms of cause factors. And so if we can really drive that down, then we'll do a, a significant job of, of improving general aviation safety overall. And I don't want to, you might not know the numbers by heart, but is out of that 48% is 60% of that IMC related, or is there a number of that loss of control that is, is in the clouds versus on, on VFR conditions? You know, I, I'm sure that we can f uh, find those figures. I don't have them right in front of me. Um, and I'll tell you, I want to put in a, a pitch for the uh, Air Safety Institute's uh, NAL report. I'm, I think probably most of your uh, listeners are well aware of the NAL report that's put out by AOPA Air Safety Institute. Uh, it's, it, you know, they really do a good job of, of slicing and dicing the, the, the reports that the NTSB comes out with. And so I think that'd be a, a great point of interest for your for your listeners robert one of our guests that we've had on the, the show is a gentleman by the name of paul craig who wrote a book called or he's written a couple of, well 
a couple of volumes, I guess, of a book called The Killing Zone, uh, where he talks about, uh, he, he, he actually gets in and really analyzes a lot of the NTSB statistics. And um, for, for our listeners out there who, who have not uh, gotten into the NTSB website and looked at the statistics, it is, there, there's some amazing things on there. Um, you can go in and you can, if you want to look at every uh, crash of a Cessna 172 that happened in the state of Texas, uh, while conducting flight instruction, you can do that and it, it will come up and, and you can just uh, sift through everything. I'm kind of a, a music uh, guy myself. So I, I Google the, the, the date of the, uh, Leonard Skinner crash. And then I go in and I look at the NTSB website and you can pull up the accident report on, on the crash of that. So there is just so much there that you can learn. And it, it, it's just factual. The, the information, uh, on the, uh, the website is, it just tells you the facts. Um, and there, you know, if, if the, if it's called, if it's closed out, it is, there is probable cause and it's probable. Um, but it's what we think happened. Um, but there's golly, there's just so much there. Well, I did not know that he had that website, but I just turned around to look on my bookshelf and I, I know I do have that, that, uh, his book, the, the killing zone. And, uh, I was looking for it and uh, things have been in disarray since I've moved uh, back to South Carolina. So I can't find anything now, but I, I, that book is around here. And, uh, and I'll also say that the NTSB has a new search capability uh, on their website and uh, it's called the Carol query, uh, C-A-R-O-L, just like the name. And it stands for something case analysis, um, something, something, something. Uh, but it was really named for uh, a lady named Carol that worked for the NTSB that anytime somebody wanted to get data, they would call Carol and uh, Carol would find it. So when, when they retired and they were putting up this new search tool, they, of course, named it. Uh, well, of course, nobody would ever name a search tool for a person, but it does have some, you know, again, some official name. Right. Uh, Carol was so so good to work with. Well, we'll definitely put both of those resources, the null report and the the cert, the Carol query, in the show notes so people can use those tools. Robert, a question that I have that uh, I'm sure people would like to know the answer to is what is the cause for taking the final report of a, of a of an accident to get to final from the NTSB? Is there is it just the data? What takes a year or two for the final report to come out? Well, that's a great question and certainly one that uh, I was trying to learn the answer for as, as chairman and, and, and change it and improve it. Um, back in the, gosh, a couple of decades ago, uh, I remember there was an accident, a crash that happened in Hibbing, Minnesota in December. Um, and the final report for that was out. Uh, the following April or May, May it was, I mean, so six months, uh, as, as we all remember, or many students may not remember, but the uh, 737 Air Florida crashed into the 14th Street Bridge and ended up in the Potomac and killed a number of people. And in January of 82, the final report was done in, in August. And I'm sure that was a very complex investigation. The aircraft had to be fished out of the Potomac. 
so over time, yes, the reports have taken longer, uh, a lot longer in many cases than, than I believe I was comfortable with. So we tried to go through and, and look, take a very detailed sort of a lean Six Sigma approach to looking for our processes, to understand our processes and, um, and improve that. Uh, the results of that won't be, won't be shown for a couple of years because you've got to kind of work through a backlog. But yes, that was, that was very much a priority of mine uh, while I was chairman of the NTSB was to, was to improve the timeliness of those reports. Um, I think there's a fear of getting something wrong. So they want to be, the staff wants to be very analytical um, but it was also learned that sometimes uh, if you had a, an airplane run out of fuel and the fuel tanks were completely empty, uh, maybe the investigator might insist on doing a, um, uh, an engine teardown. Um, you know, why do we need to do an engine teardown if the, uh, if the fuel tanks, if there wasn't enough fuel in the airplane and the, and the fuel tanks ran dry? And so we've tried to scope, scope the investigations. If this is a fuel, a fuel exha exhaustion, uh, what do we need to look at here, you know, to understand what happened there? So uh, our guys and, and, and our men and women of the NTSB are very dedicated. They love their job. They're very passionate about it, uh, but they want to be sometimes more thorough than is absolutely necessary to, uh, to really determine the probable cause and the factors that can prevent it in the future. Uh, I, I don't fault them for that, but I think that um, there needs to be uh, a greater emphasis on, on getting, getting those reports out in a timely manner without sacrificing quality. No doubt. And I'm, I, I understand all that. I think, I, I guess from my seat and not an NTSB investigator, but I would think Surely, not maybe not an airliner, but a GA thinking more from a GA perspective. Is do they know eighty five percent of it on the first first day? I mean, I would assume they do, and the rest is the analytical detailedness of it. Or am I just speculating? Am I speculating the impossible that they they don't start from the impact zone and think, okay, this is what happened? They really they really try and separate themselves and start from scratch. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know exactly how to answer that. I do suspect that there are many cases that uh, that we can probably say here's what happened um, very early. I went to a to a UPS uh, A three hundred crash in in Birmingham. It was uh, in 2013, so we're coming up on the anniversary date of that crash very soon. Um, in fact, by the time this airs, the anniversary will already have have uh, have occurred, and um, it was obvious that the airplane had crashed into the ground—a CFIT accident. But the real question is, why? And that's what took uh, a little bit over a year to be able to do the analysis and then present it to the board. Uh, we did that one in 13 months. Uh, actually, it was uh, the accident happened on August the 14th, and uh, I think it was presented to the board on something like September the 10th or something like that of the following year. 
again, we might know why, what, what happened real early. Again, the devil is in the details, and that's drilling down to understand why it happened. Yeah, and unfortunately, for my, probably for me, I watch a lot of the uh, Air Disasters TV show, and I'm watching these things that they've replayed and have already been investigated, thinking they're probably more cut and dry than they really ever are. So I, uh, I'm definitely not asking for expedited reports. I'm just curious on how that process really works and what causes some of that. You mentioned your efforts to improve those, uh, the prove the time and other things. I guess I'm curious, what what were maybe the top five things you wished to accomplish in the last couple of years that maybe we'll see in the future that you did work on that we're not aware of yet? Well, we, we worked on a, on a number of things, um, you know, things that the public can't, can't necessarily see. Uh, we worked on making sure that our internal processes were, were buttoned down. We had investigative procedures, but they were scattered out uh, all over different uh, operations bulletins and, uh, and unofficial policies, uh, manuals that hadn't been updated in a long, in a long time. And, uh, of course, Wally and I both have uh, airline experience and we, you know, we had a flight operations manual and that was pretty much or an aircraft or aircraft operating manual or a pilot's handbook, whatever it is you want to call it. And that that's the way you, you intended to operate and you made all efforts to operate that way. Uh, we had these policies and procedures or maybe sometimes we didn't. So one of the things that we did was to uh, was to pull together an investigative manual that would be a control document that would be uh, every investigator would have on his or her iPads. It would be updated uh, periodically as need be and, um, and try to try to make things uh, as standardized as possible. We did learn that, uh, that we're not always standardized across the various modes of transportation in terms of our investigative processes. And some in, in some cases, we're not even standardized within the mode. Uh, so, um, like, for example, the Office of Aviation Safety, the board has different offices, Office of Aviation Safety, which obviously is the office that investigates airplane crashes. Uh, then there's an Office of Marine Safety and an Office of Highway Safety and an Office of Rail Pipeline and Hazardous Materials. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the modal offices, the mode of transportation. So, yeah, that, you know, that was a that was one of the things that uh, that, that that I'm pleased we could get done is try to standardize our internal procedures. Uh, that's that's one right there. I guess Wally and I have talked about it leading up to this episode or the chance to speak with you. And I, I think maybe the NTSB ha- hasn't provided a lot of guidance on it, but we question the abbreviation of things that are still very hard for pilots to read. And if that'll ever change in the future, like we don't have a character problem like we used to maybe have on a dot matrix printer. Why are some notums so difficult to read uh, in some cases or the abbreviations so hard to find? Um, I'm sure that's had to have been a reason for someone missing a notum or a cause of an accident at some point. Do you ever see the, the future of abbreviations and METARs and notums being easier to read? Sure. Hope so. And uh, as as you may know, or some of your listeners may know, uh, I was quoted in a board meeting as, as saying notums were a bunch of garbage. And uh, I think I said something like they're, they're written in computer language, in a language that only a computer programmer will understand. And uh, I think that got a lot of people's attention there. 
but it is true that uh, as Wally and I know that if, well, you probably don't use paper anymore while you're using an iPad, but uh, I mean, you could spread out the amount of paper that, that a, um, an airline pilot would have before just going on a flight from, from Houston to Washington. And you'd probably have, oh my goodness, you could have at least 10 feet of paper. And so, um, um, and who has time to review every bit of that? So, you know, try to figure out a way to make the information, the relevant information, put that in the eyes of the people that need it uh, and get it up there. I understand the FAA, they have to say that there's a 300 foot tower uh, seven miles from the airport that is unlighted. Uh, they've got to do that from a legal point of view uh, to cover themselves. But uh, you're planning a day, a day, a daylight trip uh, into San Francisco, and you certainly hope you're not uh, 300 feet high, seven miles from the airport. So uh, they, they've got to figure that out. And I think that with technology, uh, I think it can be done, but it certainly needs to be done. Robert, how many aviation accident investigators does the NTSB have? Yeah, great question, Wally. The uh, the board itself, the agency itself has, as I mentioned, 400 employees. And of that, uh, the Office of Aviation Safety has right at 120, somewhere right around uh, that number. And are, are, are they spread all over the country? Yeah, they are. Um, they certainly are. We have there again, there's that pronoun issue. Um, so the they, the NTSB, has uh, four regional offices, an eastern region, a central region, and a, a Pacific Northwest region, and Alaska has its own region. So, uh, so yes, the investigators are uh, spread out across the country. Uh, of course, our major accident investigation investigators are, are domiciled in, in our headquarters in Washington. But um, but yes, and, and people don't have to go into the office every day. We have a lot of telecommuters. Uh, uh, if somebody is based in Seattle, which would be the officially domiciled in Seattle um, for the Western Pacific Regional Office, uh, they could be living in Los Angeles because, uh, you know, there's there are going to be accidents in Southern California. But, but from a reporting structure, that person would be officially assigned to the Seattle office. So yeah, people are, people are all over. And certainly during the pandemic, we've learned that people can, uh, can telecommute. I think that's going to be uh, even more use of that across not only the NTSB, but across all types of uh, business domains. Yeah, I know uh, the, the Alaska has gotten a little bit of publicity in the last week or so with the the latest accident up in Ketchikan that kind of I know that's that's there's been a couple of those and it kind of hit home for me because I've actually taken one of those float plane trips while on a cruise up there um, but uh, so so how many investigators are there in Alaska yeah I think about five um, I think that's that's about the number and and there have been several occasions where we've taken somebody from from the lower 48 and sent them to Alaska for whatever reason, just to balance the workload. Alaska considers the summer months to be their busy season. And uh, unfortunately, that is true. So occasionally uh, somebody from, from the Denver office might end up going to Alaska to help out for a few weeks up there. So, Robert, I, I guess uh... – all great insights. I'm sure I could ask a million questions. What 
if, if we got about 10 minutes left, what would you want to tell a bunch of GA pilots that um, we should be doing to better our relationship with the NTSB or with aviation in general? You gave a couple of really good resources. We'll put those in the show notes. But what what would your advice be uh, after your tenure in aviation? What, what should we be doing or thinking? You know, the people that work at the NTSB are very friendly. You want to meet them in uh, in seminars and uh, in social events. You don't want to meet them officially. Uh, officially, so um, one of the factors that I've learned over the years that we across, see in, in accidents across each of the modes that we investigate uh, is, frankly, people not following procedures. Um, it could be an accident in, like in Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, where the Gulfstream crew did not release the flight control lock before takeoff. And that did not work out well. There were seven fatalities in that. Um, you know, we just had a, an accident in, um, in Idaho where a very noted test pilot lost his life um, in a single engine airplane right at takeoff. I've seen the video of it. Uh, I've said I won't speculate on accidents, uh, which I really don't want to do. But the airplane right after takeoff goes up uh, in a high nose high nose high attitude, stalls and comes back down to the ground nose first. Um, people who have watched that have told me, "Wow, that sure looks like the flight control lock, the elevator lock uh, may have still been in." I don't know what the issue is. I'm not going to speculate on it, but um, usually we're going to find that, in, well, at least in many cases, somebody did not follow procedures. So, so follow procedures. Um, do the checklist and. Uh, there's no excuse for not doing a checklist in my, in my opinion. Boy, we've done shows dedicated to checklists. We've talked about it dozens of times. There's no question that, uh, it's the only way you can get everything done and get it done right. And you got to have some, got to have some decision-making criteria in there too, to say, this is going to be the reason I don't go. Right. But man, it's really sad to hear somebody might not have removed a control lock or something like that. Wally, any wrap up questions that you have? For this distinguished guest, no, Robert. You know, one thing that uh, Paul Craig talks about in his book is is we can measure the accidents, but what we can't measure is the the non accidents. So, uh, you know, as as advocates for aviation safety, um, we just have to go out there and and uh, keep plugging at it, and uh, you know, we're not going to. We're not going to see a report that says, gee, um, by, by what you did, you prevented 18 accidents last year. We'll never know what that number is, but we know that the number is probably greater than zero. And, uh, you know, that's just what we have to strive for, I believe. You're exactly right. We've got to strive for it. Uh, you'll remember, Wally, back in 1997 or something like that, after a series of airline accidents, uh, the industry came together and they came up with a goal of the goal of zero. And people said that, hey, that you can't reach zero. You're operating a very complex system and uh, the accidents will happen. Uh, well, guess what? Since then, um, in the last major, I'm talking about a major airline, the last big smoking hole of a major airline in the United States on a passenger carrier airliner was November of 2001 uh, when American Airlines um, uh, A300 crashed after takeoff on 
uh, out of Kennedy. So my, so that speaks volumes right there um, that you can set a goal of zero and by working very, very hard in everything that you do, uh, not just one element, not just the pilots, but the maintenance system and everything else, you really can drive that rate down significantly. So you're right, Wally, you've got to have a goal of zero, use your checklist, follow procedures, uh, and generally that will keep you out of trouble. Well, I can assure you this flight school's got a goal of zero and we're going to keep, we've got, we've got a long list, long history so far of, uh, since our last medal was bent and we're going to keep, no one's been hurt since I've been the owner and we're going to keep doing everything we can to keep it at zero. Robert, I can't thank you enough for joining our show and hopefully, uh, you'll enjoy retirement for a while and maybe we can have you back on in a few months and you can talk about what it's like in retirement. I mean, thank you so much for having me, Wally. Uh, great to uh, speak with you again. And uh, I appreciate the conversation we had uh, in the uh, Houston airport. And, and I also think that must have been, that was right before the board was going to deliberate the Asiana 214 crash in, um, that happened in, um, um, in San Francisco. I think that's when that was. So that conversation would have been uh, probably around uh, June of 2014 that I that we yeah. had that conversation. I want to know, know something about uh, some of the flight control laws of the 737. That's what I think uh, it was. I'm not I'm not totally sure that I remember that right. It was, and I think I gave you some wrong information because I <laughs> I dug in the book on the way to Washington and I was telling my first officer. I said, "Well, I I, I think I told him something wrong. I I." I need to fix this. I, I don't think you told me anything wrong at all. Uh, so don't worry about that. And uh, and and uh, I'm from the NTSB, not the FAA. So uh, it didn't it didn't right. matter one way or the other. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. Thanks again, and to all the listeners. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Check out the show notes on our website, behindtheprop.com. And as always, fly safe and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.